0: Today I'd like to welcome Dr. Manish Goyal. Uh, Manish came up from D.C. today to talk to us on uh, cardiac arrest and the issues surrounding ACLS. Dr. Goyal is the Associate Program Director of the Critical Care Fellowship at Georgetown and Washington Hospital Center. He uh, did a Critical Care Fellowship here at Shock Trauma, so it's nice to have him back home. And um, was up at uh, Penn for a while and uh, now in D.C. He's a um, very knowledgeable man, great speaker, and a a good person to uh, teach all of us on this topic. Thank you.
1: Great. Thank you very much for the invitation. Um, It's a lot of fun to be back. I can tell you that nine years ago, sitting in these chairs was the last time I was in this room. And at the time, we were debating whether or not to give steroids and spinal cord injury. Um, So I think we've hopefully come a long way. Uh, for the next 45 minutes or so, we'll talk about cardiac arrest, things that I think we could be doing that we don't do very often, and things that I think we do do that maybe we shouldn't be doing. Uh, I don't have any conflicts for this talk. I'm on the steering committee for the Penn Alliance for Thera- therapeutic hypothermia. Uh, so I want to start with the case. Uh, a case, rather a quote. This is from Dr. Peter Saffer, and uh, as many of you may know, he's considered the father of resuscitation science. Uh, Dr. Saffer was an anesthesiologist that trained in Austria, came to the U.S., to the University of Pennsylvania, did another anesthesiology residency, uh, came down to the Baltimore City Hospital, which is now Hopkins Bayview, and ended his career at the University of Pittsburgh, where today there is the Saffer Center for Resuscitation Science. And Dr. Saffer said that critical care is a concept. It's not a location. It's a way that we treat patients that begins in a pre-hospital environment, continues in the emergency department, and is completed in the intensive care unit. And I really think this is an important philosophy for all of us to embrace. Patients don't care where they are when they get sick. If they're in the PACU or the TRU or the ED or the ICU, it's up to us to know how to deliver and to deliver the right care to patients. So uh, I want to start with a case. This is a a patient that was admitted to the floor uh, for uh, rule out acute coronary syndrome. You're the fellow that's uncalled, and you're called to see the patient as part of the rapid response team. 62-year-old, rule out ACS. The nurse calls you because the patient develops worsening chest pain and shortness of breath. When you get there, her blood pressure is 64 over 48. Heart rate's 160. Respiratory rate is 24. She's pale. She's diaphoretic. She looks horrible. As you're getting your defibrillator to put it on the patient, she starts jerking and she gasps. You look up at the monitor, and this is what you see. The patient's already got an IV, uh, already has an under breather. So ask yourself, what's the best first treatment for this patient? Would it be to give her a milligram of epi, to give her five milligrams of epi, the defibrillator at 200 joules, place an oral airway, or perform endotracheal intubation? And I want you to think about this. We'll talk about each one of these options. So we've been using epinephrine for a long time. This is a handout from a talk that Dr. Stafford gave, that was published back in the Journal of the Iowa Medical Society in 1964, where he basically laid out what we knew as uh, ACLS, right? Opening the airway, breathing for patients, doing chest compressions, uh, and then administering drugs, namely epinephrine. And he advocated giving a milligram of epi IV, or 0.5 milligrams of epi intracardiac. But why epi? Why is it that we give patients epinephrine? What is it that we're hoping for? So everybody in this room is given epi, I'm assuming at a code. What physiologic outcome are you hoping for when you give epinephrine? Okay, so sure, that's the global outcome, but more physiologically based. Why epinephrine? It does a lot of things. Is this an alpha effect, a beta effect? Combination of the two, okay. Most times I ask this question, I get to jumpstart the heart, or something along those lines. And the focus is on the beta effects of the heart. It's actually the alpha effects of the heart. What we're hoping for is increasing afterload to increase our diastolic blood pressure to increase our coronary perfusion. Remember that perfusion occurs during diastole. We will increase our diastolic pressure when we increase afterload. How important is coronary perfusion pressure? This is demonstrated uh, by Norm Paradis and Manny Rivers back in a study that they published in 1990. Now most of you have heard of Manny Rivers through his fame of goal-directed therapy. but Manny actually started out in cardiac arrest research And in this study, they took 100 adults, consecutive non-traumatic out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients, and when they came into the ED, they placed right atrial catheters and aortic arch catheters, and they measured coronary perfusion pressure. Remember, it's your diastolic pressure minus your right atrial pressure. And they looked at coronary perfusion pressure in patients who did versus patients who did not get return of spontaneous circulation. Overall, 24 patients got return of spontaneous circulation, they saw maximum coronary perfusion pressures significantly higher, 25 in those with ROSC, eight in those uh, who did not get ROSC. And they tended to see the highest coronary perfusion pressures right before return to spontaneous circulation. If we look at all 100 of these patients, so this is max coronary perfusion pressure here, uh, no ROSC versus ROSC, you see this line here, 15 millimeters of mercury, where if you didn't get over 15 millimeters of mercury, none of the patients got return of spontaneous circulation. Now, this is not to say that if you did get 15 or higher, you did get ROSC. There's still these patients who didn't get ROSC. But we've seen this number of 15 millimeters of mercury come up in the data in both animal models and human models to suggest that this is an endpoint that we should consider targeting, and this is the benefit of epinephrine. Now, what's the downside to epi? It's those beta-1 effects. When we give patients epinephrine and stimulate beta-1, we're increasing the heart rate, we're increasing contractility. If we look at patients that had an out-of-hospital arrest, what's the most likely reason they arrested? If it was a VTVF arrest, because they occluded a vessel. So they occluded a coronary artery, and we're giving them a drug that increases their myocardial oxygen demand when they cannot increase circulation and increase oxygen delivery. Right? In addition to that, we're uh, decreasing microvascular perfusion throughout the body, particularly in the brain uh, and the heart. So if we consider there are legitimate good and legitimate bad to epinephrine, how does the data play out? Is it actually beneficial to give epi? If we look back at the, data that, uh, the original data that supported using epinephrine, this is back from the 1960s. This is also out of the Baltimore City Hospital a randomized controlled trial, a dog model using a uh, dog model, where they used 7 to 15 kilo dogs, and they gave them a milligram of epi. So the dogs were randomized to either getting nothing, control, a milligram of epi, and then there was a bunch of other combination of medications. And ultimately what they found uh, was that there was more return of spontaneous circulation and more dogs alive at 24 hours if they were to get epinephrine. <coughs> But it would be reasonable to say, if a milligram of epi works in a 15-kilo dog, should we be giving a milligram to humans? Or should we maybe give five milligrams to a 70-kilo human? And that question was addressed in the 1990s. The best study, I think, is this one from the European Epinephrine Study Group. This is a multicenter, double-blind, randomized controlled trial from 94 to 96 that randomized patients to getting either a milligram or 5 milligrams of repeat dose epinephrine. So they gave up to 15 milligrams, excuse me, up to 15 doses of epi, although the median was 6 doses. These were in uh, adults with non traumatic out of hospital cardiac arrest, and they had to have either VFib after three shocks, or asystole, or PEA. And otherwise, they followed standard AHA guidelines. Overall, there were 3,300 patients in the study. These were well matched patients. If we look at how they did, we look at return of spontaneous circulation, 40% versus 36% higher in the group that got high dose epi. If we look at uh, admission to the ICU, still significantly higher. So if you are an EMS provider or uh, an emergency provider, these data look promising, right? We see more patients get return of spontaneous circulation, more of them make it to the ICU. But if we look at hospital discharge, there's no difference. And if we look at the outcome that I think should be our primary outcome, CPC1, cerebral performance category one, meaning neurologically intact at discharge, absolutely no difference with high dose versus normal dose epinephrine. So, what is it that's going on here? Is it that epinephrine doesn't work or high dose epi doesn't work? Or is it that we didn't know how to take care of patients here? Right? Remember, this is from 94 to 96. This is before we were doing therapeutic hypothermia. Um, Maybe before we had goal-directed protocols for resuscitation. Um, I can tell you when I was a resident in in the MICU working under Dr. Zubrow, there were definitely patients that we admitted to the unit where we didn't do a heck of a lot for them. uh, Cardiac arrest patients. Uh, so, So what is it that's going on here? This overall I thought was a great study. There was one thing, though, that I thought was a glaring omission. Any thoughts? There's no control group. All we had up to this point are case reports and animal data that Epi actually works. We didn't get human data until this study published in 2009. Uh, this is a randomized controlled trial of consecutive adults that suffered out of hospital cardiac arrest, non traumatic, done in Oslo between 2003 and 2008. And what they randomized the patients to getting was ACLS with an IV and the IV medications or ACLS. Uh, without an IV and no IV medications, so with IV was uh, the control group. If we look at the baseline characteristics of the groups, these folks are well-matched. Things that we think might make a difference, like the percentage of patients that have VFib, or those who get bystander CPR or those who have an arrest in a public place, all of these are well-matched in the group. If we look at the number who actually got epinephrine, uh, in the no IV group, so this would be the intervention arm, no IV, no meds, 9% of the patients actually got epi. And if we look at the IV group, those who are supposed to get an IV in medications, only 79% got epi. And why is this? Well, in the epi group, the way the protocol was written was that if you got return of spontaneous circulation and you had it for five minutes, you could then get an IV, and if you rearrested, you could get epinephrine. So uh, that's why some of these patients ended up getting epi. And in the IV group, some of these patients got randomized um, they, but they got return to spontaneous circulation prior to actually getting epi. Other patients, we can never get an IV on, uh, so they didn't get epinephrine. Uh, so how overall did we do? 850 patients, if we look at rates of return to spontaneous circulation, profound difference, 15% difference in those who get an IV and those who get medication. If we look at percentage that get admitted to the ICU. Again, significantly higher in those with IV and get, getting medications. But if we look at rates to hospital discharge, there's no difference. And if we look again at CPC1-2, no difference. Uh, we had asked the question earlier, is this because we weren't sure how to take care of these patients? Well, there's similar use of therapeutic hypothermia, similar rates of using the CAT lab uh, in, in both of these groups. These investigators actually went back and did a post-doc analysis. This first study was published as an intention to treat analysis. In this second study, when they looked at their data, they compared patients who actually got epinephrine versus those who did not get epinephrine. Uh, In in those two arms, those who got epi, (coughs) higher rates of ROSC, higher rates of getting admitted to the hospital. When we look at hospital discharge, significantly lower if you got epi, and if you look at CPC one or two, again, significantly lower. Now, this is a subgroup analysis. There's clearly selection bias as to why patients did or did not receive epinephrine, but it's still interesting, because it still makes us ask the question of are we harming patients when we give them epinephrine? If you look at the current AHA guidelines, it still suggests giving a milligram of epi Q3 to 5, but if you read the text underneath that recommendation, it actually says that it may not help, but it probably doesn't hurt. and I think this is probably true. The way that I, what I suggest to my fellows and my residents is you can give epinephrine as long as you don't do it at the expense of something that we know works. Now what do I mean by that? How many of you have, uh, during a code, uh, put in a central line? And how many of you have asked the person doing CPR to hold compressions while you got that uh, line in or put the guide wire in or whatever it was? Many of you have, uh, and I certainly have. And I think the same thing applies for intubation uh, and for uh, potentially an echo. Um, You know, we do things that I don't think necessarily these patients need at the expense of doing things that make a difference, like great CPR. Um, All right, on to the next topic, defibrillation. I don't think that there's much debate here that defibrillation makes a difference, right? This is the whole premise of an AICD rapid recognition of the uh, dysrhythmia and defibrillation. It's the premise of an AED, right? We see this work in hospitals, uh, in airports, uh, in stadiums. We see this work in casinos. One of my favorite studies, published in the New England Journal by Valenzuela and colleagues in 2000, the investigators went to uh, casinos and taught casino security guards how to use AEDs. They then placed them strategically around the casinos uh, if a patient had a witnessed arrest, and most arrests in casinos are witnessed because of the security systems, uh, if they were witnessed, one security guard went to the patient, a second one went to get an AED, and went to the patient. And they placed those AEDs such that they could get to the patient within three minutes. What they found is that they were able to get to patients that had witnessed arrests within three minutes and defibrillate them, 74% of patients survived to hospital discharge. 74% Right, 74% of patients uh, with a cardiac arrest survived. That's profound. Right? This tells us that time to defibrillation is exceptionally important. Most of us don't work in casinos or have the opportunity to defibrillate people this quickly. Are there data in hospital? And the answer is yes. This is uh, by Chan and colleagues in the New England Journal in 2008. It's a retrospective review of the NRCPR where they looked at the association between delays to defibrillation and survival to hospital discharge they defined a delay as greater than two minutes. Overall, 369 hospitals, almost 7,000 patients with an in-hospital VF or VT arrest with a median time to defibrillation of a minute. 2000, just over 2,000 patients had delayed defibrillation. Overall, 61% of the patients had return of spontaneous circulation, 34% survived a hospital discharge. If We look at their primary question We look at the group that, uh, return of spontaneous circulation for the group that was not delayed, 66% got ROSC, the group that was delayed, 49%, and if we look at survival in the group that was not delayed, 39% survival, and the group that was delayed, 22%. If we look at a function of survival uh, from time to defibrillation, we see a nice stepwise decrease in survival uh, as we delay our defibrillation. And I think what this tells us is if we see a patient that develops a VFib, you know, there's a lot of activity, a lot of things that we're trying to accomplish. We need to defibrillate the patient as quickly as possible. It's the primary uh, intervention that we need to focus on. What about airway management, uh, intubating these patients? Is there a role for intubating these patients in cardiac arrest? And this is an interesting study published by Ian Steele, and it's a multi-center before and after trial in Ontario, and let me just explain this study, basically when uh, these guys were trying to develop an ALS system in Ontario, the government said, look, this is expensive. If we're going to do this, you have to tell us that it works, you've got to show us data that it works. So they implemented the various links in this chain of survival that the American Heart Association talks about, and every time they did, they did a before and after study. They compared survival before implementation and after implementation. So they did it for early CPR, and they demonstrated that it works. They did it for early defibrillation, and again, demonstrated that it works. This study was early advanced care, and that was defined as early placement of IV and delivery of medications and early intubation. The before group had 1,400 patients, after group had uh, 4,200 patients. They were well-matched in baseline characteristics and timeline, you know, time to an ambulance arriving, time to first defibrillation, time to getting to the hospital, all of those things very well matched. 91% of the patients had endotracheal intubation attempted, almost 94% were successful. And 84% of the patients got epi, again these are both in the after arms. When we look at survival, 18%, uh, sorry, when we look at return of spontaneous circulation, uh, much higher in the group in the afterarm. admission to the ICU, also higher, but when we get down to the outcomes that we care about, Hospital discharge CPC1, no difference. If we look specifically at the subgroup that we're talking about for our patient that we're talking about at the beginning of the talk, a VTVF subgroup, again, there's no difference uh, with early um, intubation. So what works for these patients? I'm not convinced that epi actually makes a difference. Um, I certainly don't think that we should do things that do make a difference in order to be able to administer epinephrine. Intubation I don't think helps unless this is a primary airway problem. There are data uh, out of Arizona. Ben Babra published a paper in 2009 that looks at patients that are getting minimally interrupted chest compressions for CPR. And he randomized them to either just getting a non-rebreather in an oral airway or bag valve mask ventilation. And outcomes are the same. Um, So I don't think we should be spending a lot of time uh, uh, trying to perform RSI in these patients. Rapid defibrillation, definitely. Other things that make a difference, high quality chest compressions. Using a rate of 100 to 120, compressing at least two inches, making sure we allow the chest to recoil, and minimizing time off the chest. Now, what do I mean by time off the chest? This means minimizing our pre-shock pauses, so doing compressions right up to the point of defibrillating, minimizing also uh, uh, time till we get back on the chest after that defibrillation, minimizing time for things like pulse checks uh, and for Echoes and again for central lines and intubation, making sure we prioritize uh, uh, chest compressions. This is important uh, and this is uh, uh, nicely demonstrated. These are a couple slides from Benabella um, from a study from Bob Berg in 2001 where we look at diastolic blood pressure and what happens when we take, when we have pauses, right? So remember, we said that we need to get an elevated coronary perfusion pressure and that's diastolic pressure minus right atrial pressure. If you look at diastolic pressure, as you do chest compressions, it goes up, 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 and then it drops every time we take a pause. Uh, And it takes a little bit of time to get back up. If we look at this in a patient who's not getting pauses, it goes up, 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 and then stays elevated. And this is what we're trying to accomplish, trying to keep this diastolic blood pressure or coronary perfusion elevated. So there's one other factor that I think is really important Uh, when it comes to uh, CPR and how we perform CPR. And it's demonstrated in this video. Uh, So just to set the stage here, this is a 78-year-old female that was brought in by EMS with PEA arrest. And this is towards the uh, resuscitation. Um, My senior resident was running uh, running this code. And take a look and see if you see any problems. Any problems? Yeah, no chest compressions, right? That's the obvious. Anything else? Yeah, so let's take a look. If you didn't notice it the first time, pay attention here. That's one, two, three, four, and five. That's a 12-second clip. That gives her a respiratory rate of 25. Uh, is that a problem? Yeah, right. increasing our intrathoracic pressure, decreasing our coronary perfusion pressure. Uh, and I think this is one of the, the biggest problems that persists in our management of patients in cardiac arrest. This was very nicely demonstrated by Tom Ofterheide in a study by, in 2004 in circulation. Uh, This is a three-part study, it was really cool. In the first part, they looked at ventilation rates and breath durations in patients that had out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So seven consecutive adults in a system with highly trained paramedics, when at the time, the American Heart Association recommended a rate of 12 to 15. So they looked at these first seven patients consecutively. What do you think the mean respiratory rate was in these patients? I'll remind you that they knew they were being studied, and they knew the guidelines, yeah, 20, something like that, 37, mean respiratory rate 37, the breath duration, each breath was 0.85 seconds, that translates to positive intrathoracic pressure for 50% of the time, if we look at this graphically, this is 16 seconds, this is how often they were getting breaths, uh, and this again is airway pressure on the right. right, not good. So they stopped. Second part of the study, they retrained all the paramedics. They said, "All right, remember, respiratory rate of 12," and they went and they looked at the next six consecutive uh, arrests. What do you think the respiratory rate was now? It's still pretty high. Came down to 22. Okay, so still high. This time, though, the breath duration went up to 1.18 seconds. So overall, there was still 44.5% of the time patient had positive intrathoracic pressure. So there's no actual difference. Between this, so they took the data from all 13 patients and they combined them and they said, all right. So this means that our patients are getting a respiratory rate of 30, and each breath is about a second. And they took these values and applied it to a pig model and studied the hemodynamics. Okay, so it's a pig model of VF arrest where the pigs were in arrest for six minutes, uh, and then they did standard CPR. They randomized the pigs to getting either 12, 20, or 30 breaths per minute. Okay. Each breath was a second, and they looked at outcomes, intrathoracic pressure and coronary perfusion pressure. So so what do we think is going to happen? As the respiratory rate goes up, what's going to happen to the intrathoracic pressure? It should go up. And what's going to happen to our coronary perfusion pressure? We think it should go down. So let's take a look. If you look at intrathoracic pressure, it starts at 7, goes up, up, up to 17.5, And if you look at coronary perfusion pressure, comes down from 23 to 17. When we look at rates of return of spontaneous circulation, 87% in this group, only 14% uh, in this group. So yes, these are animal data, but I think very powerful data that we need to focus on the number of ventilations for our patients in cardiac arrest. What's interesting about this is the respiratory therapist and the senior resident that were involved in that case didn't believe me. They're like, it wasn't 25, there's no way it was 25. I had to show them the video before they would believe me that the respiratory rate was that high. Um, All right, let's go on to the next case. So this is a 58-year-old male that had been admitted to our neurosciences ICU after having a recent stroke. And he was moved to the floor. He had a rapid response called because he became confused and hypotensive. You're the fellow that's part of the RRT team a response responds to the patient's. When you get there, the patient's pale, got agonal respirations, and you can't palpate a pulse. When you take a look at the monitor, this is what you see. So you put the head of the bed down, getting ready to start doing compressions, and you think to yourself, this is the best next intervention. Is it giving the patient a milligram of epi, giving them a milligram of epi, 20 of vasopressin, and 40 of methylprednisolone? defibrillating at 200 joules, giving a milligram of atropine or intubating the patient. How many of you would say B? So we get a few hands. Hopefully you guys got the opportunity to read the article uh, that Mike sent around. Um, This conversation started with an article that was published in 2009. Uh, This is a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled study of 100 consecutive patients who suffered an in-hospital cardiac arrest at a single center in Greece between 2006 and 2007. The intervention in these patients uh, was to give a milligram of epinephrine, 20 milligrams of vasopressin per CPR cycle. And for the first cycle, they also gave 40 milligrams of methylprednisolone. If they got return of spontaneous circulation and the patients had uh, shock after ROSC, they put them on in total nine days of hydrocortisone. Okay? Uh, the control arms got the milligram of epi but then got placebo every time there was another intervention. Okay? Um, I'll point out that, that what they call an in-hospital cardiac arrest may be a little bit different than what we call an in-hospital arrest. 18% of the patients were in the emergency department uh, when, they, when they arrested and I'm not sure how that translates to our practice here. If we look at their outcomes, ROSC significantly higher in the group that gets vasopressin, steroids, and epi. We look at four-hour survival, again, significantly higher. And if we look at survival to hospital discharge, it's a 15% difference, right? This is profound. Um, This is a single-center study. It's relatively small. And most importantly, they never looked at neurologic function, which I think is a flaw. We actually uh, reviewed this article in our journal club. I'm like, yeah, you know, this is kind of interesting, but lots of limitations, can't really do a heck of a lot with it. Um, If, however, you were going to hypothesize that the vasopressin was the part that made the difference, how would the vasopressin work? What do you think the vasopressin would do that would produce results like this? Yeah, the thought is, is you'd increase your afterload, you'd increase your diastolic perfusion pressure you'd increase your uh, coronary perfusion pressure. So the investigators actually looked at this. They looked at the diastolic diastolic pressures, and during CPR, they're significantly higher. After return of spontaneous circulation, they continue to be significantly higher. If we think it's the steroids that make a difference, we could look at uh, inflammatory markers. And indeed, those who got the steroids had significantly lower levels of inflammatory markers and less organ dysfunction. Um, so interesting data, but again, not sure what to do with this with this single center study. Then, a couple months ago in JAMA, this article was published. Uh, same design, double-blind, placebo-controlled, now 268 consecutive patients, uh, all having in-hospital arrest, now at three centers throughout Greece, with the exact same intervention: the Epi, the vasopressin, the steroids, and the steroids in the post-shock group. And again, in this group, 15% of the patients. The arrest was in the emergency department. Uh, When we look at their outcomes, uh, return to spontaneous circulation, significantly higher in the intervention arm, four-hour survival, significantly higher, hospital discharge, significantly higher, and now they looked at neurologic function as well, and that also was significantly higher, 14% versus 5%. They had similar use of cath labs, similar use of hypothermia, similar complications, all impressive data. They also looked again at diastolic pressures, and they're much higher, 17 millimeters of mercury higher during CPR, and 19 millimeters of mercury higher after return of spontaneous circulation. Now part of the theory here of why this might work is when we raise our diastolic pressures, we also increase our cerebral perfusion pressure. And it just so happened that 14 patients in this study actually had ICP monitoring in place. And so they were able to look at their CPPs, and there were seven in each arm. And the CPPs went from 20 in the control group to 50 in the intervention (coughs) arm. So I I think these are pretty impressive data, but is this ready for prime time? I think there were three hands that went up that said that you would do this now. Anybody want to change their opinion? Would you be more likely to give this now? Yeah? Yeah? So I'm not sure. This, these are my issues. So first off, is this generalizable to the U.S.? And this may seem like a silly question, but fundamentally, cultures are different. If you look at some cultures around the world, people over 65 or 75 don't go to the hospital, right? They die at home. And how does that change uh, if we dilute the pool uh, and the potential treatment effect should go down? Um, 15, 18% of the patients had in-hospital arrests. Again, generally speaking, when somebody sorry, I'm sorry has a, an arrest in the ED, Generally speaking, people who arrest in the ED or out of hospital are a little bit different than in-hospital arrests. Uh, The other thing is that, is it the steroids or is it the vasopressin? I don't think you can really say. There are data to support both. Lower inflammatory markers, higher diastolic perfusion pressures. I think if you buy into this, I think you've got to do the whole thing. Um, The other problem that I had with this study was I kept thinking about this other study that I had read before. and This is actually when I was a fellow. And there's so much literature to get through. The way that I categorize things, when I read a study, I say to myself, this is interesting, this maybe makes a difference, or looks like it doesn't make a difference, or we need more data. And I remember reading this study thinking to myself, man, it it doesn't look like it works. And I was kind of bummed because I thought vasopressin in cardiac arrest should work. And so when I was preparing this talk, I went back and I read that lecture, I read that article again. This is a study published by Volker Wenzel back in 2004. It's a double-blind, randomized controlled trial uh, that includes 33 communities in Europe between 99 and 2002, almost 1,200 patients with out-of-hospital arrests requiring a pressor, And the patients got randomized to either getting vasopressin, and it was 40 units, a total of two doses, or epinephrine, and they only, again, got two doses. If they didn't get ROSC afterwards, they could get as much epi as the ED doc that was working wanted to give, open-label epinephrine afterwards, okay? So when we look at the results, when we look at rates of ROSC, 28% in the epi group, 24% in the uh, vasopressin group. Again, a reminder, this just refers to after those first two rounds of medications, because that's when the intervention occurred. If we look overall at hospital admission, higher in the vasopressin group, at hospital discharge, no difference, and CPC1 discharge, no difference. And again, this is how I remembered this study, vasopressin doesn't work. What I didn't recall about this study are these 732 patients who got extra epi. Now this is 65% of the patients got extra epi after those first two rounds of medication. And if you look at just these patients, vasopressin, the group that got vasopressin had a significantly higher rate of return of spontaneous circulation, significantly higher hospital admission, and significantly higher hospital discharge. If you look at CPC1, I don't think this met significance, but there certainly is a trend here. It's at least to me, is now no longer discordant with the data published by the folks at a, at a Greece, which suggests that maybe vasopressin does make a difference, um, and maybe we should be using it. My takeaway from this is, it's important to have this conversation with uh, the other people in the hospital that are making these decisions. If you're an emergency provider talking to the ICU co- your ICU college, your code blue team to figure this out. Because this is a nine day protocol. So if you're in the ED, ideally, the folks upstairs are going to do the same thing that you're doing. If you're in the SICU and you're you know, day five in your week, when you finish three days later, two days later, you're going to want the next attending to do the same thing. So I think it's important to have conversations about this to figure out if you're going to use this as part of your management strategy. Has anybody here done this? See one person? Anyone else? Yeah, and so we talked about this. Um, I talked about this with our MICU director, He's on board, wants to do it. Talked about it with our CCU director, doesn't believe the data. Uh, so it's a little hard. Uh, you know, these aren't easy conversations, but I do think that they're important conversations. Um, I think we have time for one more case. Uh, so this is a 57 year old male that was brought in by EMS. He's found down by family. He had no bystander CPR. Um, upon EMS arrival, he was actually in asystole. He had ACLS with three rounds of epinephrine. Had a King airway was placed in the emergency department. He got calcium, got bicarb, uh, got epinephrine, uh, and was intubated. He developed the attack, Was defibrillated twice into a normal sinus rhythm. His blood pressure is sixty-two over ninety. Uh, heart rate sixty-two. Blood pressure is ninety-two over fifty-four, and he's saturating hundred percent. His eyes were closed and he's not making any purposeful movement. In the ED, he had an OG tube placed, had a central line placed, had an A line, had labs drawn His K came back at greater than 8, got insulin, glucose, bicarb, and had a hemodialysis catheter placed. He's kind of going to be coming up to your unit. Anything else that you want to do for this gentleman? What's that? Cool him? How many of you would cool this patient? Okay, good, so about half the room says that they would cool this patient. I'm sure all of you are familiar with these two large studies published back in 2002. Uh, We know that there is a significant improvement in survival, as well as in rates of good neurologic function in patients that get cooled in these studies. But can we apply these data to the patient that we're talking about? And the answer is no. Our patient has an asystolic arrest. These patients both had VF, uh, rather, these studies included patients with VF or VT. If we look at the American Heart Association guidelines for out of hospital VF, VT arrest, hypothermia is standard of care. But if somebody has an in hospital arrest or has a PEA or asystolic arrest, hypothermia is a class 2B recommendation, basically meaning you can do it if you want to. You're probably not wrong, but it's it's certainly not necessary to do it. So again, he would have been excluded. What data do we have to, to guide us? We've got a fair amount of database data. Uh, one of my favorites is, is an older study. It was published in 2009 from the Hypothermia Network, about 1,000 patients, and what's interesting to me is they break patients down by rhythm. If you look at asystole, 217 patients, 21% of these patients go on to have good neurologic outcomes. If we look at the PEA group, 66 patients, 23% of these patients go on to have good neurologic outcomes. These are highly selected groups of patients. They had to survive to get to an ICU. Um, not to say that we can expect numbers like this in our general PEA or asystole, asystole uh, patients, but I do think it tells us that initial rhythm shouldn't be an exclusion criterion. If you were going to cool him, would you cool him in the ED or would you wait for him to get upstairs? What's that? the sooner the better, and we have data to say that. It's gonna be hard to get human data to ever say, to randomize somebody to later initiation of cooling, right? We do have animal data. This is at a Bob Newmar's lab when he was at Penn, and this is a prospective randomized rat model of PEA and asystole cardiac arrest. They basically did standard resuscitation after they got return of spontaneous circulation, they cooled the, the rats at either zero, one, four or eight hours after ROSC, or they didn't cool them at all, there was a control group, right? And they looked at seven-day rates of survival and rates of good neurologic function. If, uh, let's look at survival first, if they got cooled right away, 45% of the animals survived, at one hour, 36%, at four hours, 36%, at eight hours, only 14%, and if they didn't get cooled at all, 17%. So no difference here between eight hours in normothermia. If we look at rates of good neurologic function, 24% if uh, cooled right away, 24% if initiated at one hour, this drops down to 19% at four hours, and zero at eight hours, very similar to the normothermia group. Again, no difference here. Which, as I said, we're never going to have human data to say we need to do this early, but I certainly think it makes sense. We want to implement this uh, as early as possible. Mike, do I have time to go on a little bit further? Okay, great. So what else can we do? Let's say we make the decision to cool this patient. What else can we do early on to make a difference in this patient's outcome? What about vent management? Anything we need to do with the ventilator in this patient? So if we consider that most of these patients aren't going to have acute lung injury, many of them will develop pneumonia, but when they come in, most of them don't have acute lung injury, you can use standard mode uh, ventilators. We want to target normal carbide for these patients, but what about their oxygen? ACOS emphasizes 100% FiO2, and I would argue that many of us, when we get return of spontaneous circulation, we set whatever settings it is, you know, 500, 14, 105, and then we get a guess and we figure out if we need to titrate the patient, right? Is it possible that that 100% FiO2 that we're exposing patients to, albeit for a brief period, is harmful? Um, and this is a question that was actually looked at here, at shock trauma. Uh, this is at a Bob Rosenthal's lab, uh, published in 2006, and they used a dog model uh, for VF arrest. And what they did was just that. So they got, uh, had VF arrest in dogs, got return of spontaneous circulation, Um, When they were doing the resuscitation, the dogs were resuscitated with 100% FiO2. They divided the dogs into two groups. And in the first group, they exposed the dogs to one hour of 100% FiO2. In the second group, they immediately titrated down the FiO2 based on the SAT. And they tried to get the SAT down to 96%. And they were able to do that very quickly in all of the dogs. And then they they then looked at uh, neurologic function. They also looked at uh, neuronal cell injury and they found significantly more neuronal cell injury from this exposure of one hour of hyperoxia. When they looked at neurologic function, again, significantly uh, better function in the groups that had the rapid titration of the FiO2. And you can say, well, these are interesting, <coughs> these are animal models, do we have uh, human models? I doubt we're ever gonna have prospective data, but we do have some retrospective data uh, published out of Steve Treziak's group Uh, in 2010 in JAMA, it's a retrospective review of the project impact ICU database, this includes 120 hospitals, they looked specifically at adults with non-traumatic arrest that had an ABG performed within 24 hours of getting to the ICU, and they tried to isolate hyperoxia, that was their exposure. They looked at in-hospital mortality. They a priori divided the groups, uh, the patients into three groups based on that first ICU PAO2 and they defined hyperoxia as anybody with a PaO2 over 300, hypoxia as a PaO2 of less than 60 or a PF ratio of less than 300, and normoxia essentially as everything else. When they looked at the groups, let's take a look first at in-hospital mortality in hypoxic patients versus normoxic, kind of what you'd expect, right? You'd expect higher mortality in the hypoxic group, 57% versus 45% in the normoxic group but when we compare normoxic to hyperoxic, 45% to 63%, significantly higher mortality in the patients that were exposed to this hyperoxia. If we look at where they went when they were discharged, significantly less patients actually went home, suggesting that they needed more uh, support. Um, Most of the patients that went home were in the the normoxic group. So again, I don't think we're ever going to have human data uh, to, to say that we should do this, but this is a simple... Free intervention that's highly unlikely to harm a patient. It's just we have to think about it early. We have to titrate down that FiO2. Remember that oxygen, like fluids, like everything else, is a drug. You want to use as much as you need of it uh, and no more. So we go back to our case, um, just by show of hands, the data that we have. How many of you would cool him? Okay. So, this is interesting. I'll, sh- I'll tell you this before we talk about what happened with this patient. So, um, I had two research assistants over the summer, and I had them pull data on all of the cardiac arrests done in the hospital center, brought into the hospital center over the last three and a half years. In total, we had 320 arrests that were non shockable. So, first rhythm was PEA or asystole. Out of those 320, how many things survived to hospital discharge? 29 went to the ICU, Uh, zero survived hospital discharge. Not one. Not one patient that came in in PEA or asystole first rhythm from the field uh, made it out of the hospital. Uh, So that's the backdrop. We did end up cooling this patient, uh, and they actually did quite well. We put the temporal bladder catheter in, gave the cold saline, applied our Arctic sun, that's the device that we choose to use. They actually got down to 33 degrees prior to getting the patient up uh, to the MICU. They were hemodialyzed. Uh, they completed their target temperature management without any complications, and they were discharged to rehab uh, with the GCS of 11T. They had a trach uh, and did quite well. So this was the first. It was interesting because we completed that review in uh, June, and this patient came in in August. Uh, so we had three and a half years worth of data where not one patient survived, and then you know, two months later somebody survived. which is kind of interesting. Um, so just to wrap up, I think that the things that make a difference in cardiac arrest management are rapid defibrillation, chest compression quality, and making sure we limit ventilations. We need to balance the risk and benefit of epinephrine, we need to understand the downsides to giving patients epinephrine, and certainly there's no role, I think, for high dose epinephrine. We need to have conversations with our colleagues about whether or not we're going to implement vasopressin, steroids, epinephrine, and we need to work towards implementing hypothermia early. And lastly, remember, again, oxygen is a drug. Only give as much as you need. Thanks again for the invitation to speak. Dr. Zubrow.
2: with uh, vasopressin. Moving on to vasopressin, I think there uh, is emerging data, uh, and I know it's in the sepsis literature with uh, particular James Russell's work uh, out in Vancouver of a synergistic effect with steroids and
1: Thank you. sir. regarding the Gemma article that you mentioned
0: in the study, so I believe that they started actually basic precedents you're at after a certain number of cycles of regular
1: CPR. So if you were to implement uh basic precedents would
0: you would you use the same uh technique that they did or do you just go ahead and do? Uh
1: right. So so the question is uh in the protocol of the study. They implemented the vasopressin after a certain number of cycles. If I remember right, that was after one cycle. Is that is that right? Yeah, uh, yeah I think it's after one cycle. So um, I think that you could. I'm not sure that it would make that much of a difference. I think if you believe the data, it would be reasonable to give the medications as quickly as possible. Um, what I didn't share was there was no change in complications in either of the groups. No change in infection. No change in uh, in um, in any of the complications that were measured, so I, I think it would be reasonable to give it as your first round. Now, practically speaking, working in the emergency department, and, and again, what I've said to my, my residents is by the time they get to us, they've gotten four or five or six rounds of epinephrine, so if you want to give your first round as uh, vasopressin, epinephrine, steroids, go ahead and do that.
0: And just one more question, the, you talked about the guidelines, how the rate went from 12 to 6, was that based on studies? or? Was it just a physiological concept? I'm sorry, I,
1: I, how, what the, went from the 12 The rate of to
0: ventilation, you said that it was 12 per minute based on the previous guidelines, and now it's down to 6 and 8.
1: Um, so the previous guidelines were 12 to 15, and yeah. I believe the current ones are 6 to 10. So uh, is that based on? I think school? a lot of that's based on the after study. Any other
0: questions? I think uh, one other uh, topic that I'll or that I'll frequently bring up, whether our, th- our uh, TBI talks or stroke or whatever the case, I, I think the an often um, underthought about issue in the setting of uh, unstable patients is the acid-base status. And um, in addition to the in- increased intrathoracic pressure that occurs with hyperventilation, you have in alkalemia that ensues, which will shift the oxygen dissociation curve to the left, minimize uh, oxygen unloading at the at the tissues that need it the most, um, and so that I always wonder how much that contributes to the uh, worsened prognosis with yep. the individuals that are hyperventilated. Um, and also, can, would you mind uh, in, in working with some of these guys? I know Benabella is doing a lot of. Uh, research into prognostication following cardiac arrest and there's still a big question mark in terms of how do we properly prognosticate following uh, therapeutic hypothermia and um, do you have any insight that you'd like to share with us or I,
1: I about so that? so the way it works at our shop is we divide patients based on first rhythm if they're uh, VTVF they go to the CCU if they are, they go to the MICU. The hard part about that is, as I said, over the last three and a half years, we haven't had a single survivor. So you can imagine how that went to the MICU. You can imagine how the MICU folks feel about doing therapeutic hypothermia, keeping these patients alive in the units for two or three or four or five days. They don't feel great about it. So um, our own practice is we end up potentially prematurely withdrawing care early in the MICU, we tried to do SSEPs at three days in the CCU. And uh, did most of the folks that went to the, C- that went to the CCU with VTVF, um, were they capped? Um, so they, they good, good, good question, so what what we did do was we uh, we capped everybody, that was VTVF, didn't matter what the EKG showed, um, we capped all the patients. We found less disease than we were expecting. So you know this goes back to the spalding data from 97 that says um, uh, they, he if you're not familiar with the data, he cathed everybody that came in with a VT or VF arrest regardless of what the ECG showed. And one of the concerning findings in that study is that something like 11 or 13% of the patients with non-specific ECGs had acute vesicle occlusion. Uh, and so it's it prompted folks like us to say let's cath everyone that comes in with VTVF. And overall we're finding less disease than we were expecting. Uh, so we've, we've revised our guidelines to say, we will cath anybody with VTVF if they're hypotensive or they have um, STEMI on ECG? If not, they'll still go to the CCU and they'll usually get cathed within 24 to 48 hours. We just don't think, you know, going to the cath lab in a, in a relatively non-ICU environment, getting a nephrotoxic drug may not be the best thing uh, for these patients. Uh, the flip side of that is one, if one's hypotensive, not only can you potentially open the vessel, but you can put them on an IADP, and that's been our practice.
0: I know there have been some, been some uh, uh, searches into other ways to improve coronary perfusion pressure, whether it's abdominal binding, various medications. I, Scott, I think you uh, I listened to one of your podcasts a while back, and you talked to some, the guys from uh, Minnesota, um, would you mind commenting on some of like nitroprusside? Sure, well
3: there's a lot of stuff that has shown some benefit in animals I and mean, I'm just familiar with all this stuff, um, but in terms of actual mechanical situations, those actually have shown benefit in humans and the Lancet trial was the demonstration of that that finally showed benefit. And the two in combination are active compression, decompression CPR, so it's actually a toilet plunger on the chest that not only you push down with, but actually will generate negative interthoracic pressure. That didn't pan out alone, but when combined with an impedance threshold device, which actually prevents ventilations from being given during the point of maximal coronary filling, so it actually doesn't let you give a breath during the release phase of the CPR. Those two in combination actually showed mortality benefit and hospital discharge benefit. Um, The bigger trial on that is gonna come out very shortly, and then I think that will become standard of care in terms of all the medication that you're alluding to Mike, those I think are still at the point where they're showing you know, signal, but they're not ready for prime time.
0: Thanks, uh, in, any comment no? on that? Right. Any other uh, questions? All right everyone, thanks for coming. Thank you Manish. <laughs>